Welcome, I'm Elia Einhorn, co-curator of Inside Out, a series of podcasts from Pitchfork that explore new perspectives on music, art, and culture. Inside Out is presented by MailChimp. Build your brand, sell more stuff. Tori Amos is one of the most outspoken and distinctive musicians of her generation. Her mere name brings to mind a very specific kind of music, often spellbinding in its contradictions. Raw yet highly technical in its piano playing, theatrical but extremely intimate in its vocals, playful but also dead serious in its performance, all with a lyrical message placed front and center. This combination has kept her fans extremely loyal. Without ever pandering to pop radio, Amos has become one of the few women with five or more albums to debut in the top 10. Amos's musical career began 48 years ago when, at the age of five, she became the youngest person ever admitted to the Peabody Conservatory of Music. She spent her teenage years playing piano on the DC bar circuit and was signed to Atlantic Records by her early 20s. Her first two albums, Little Earthquakes and Under the Pink, went on to become touchstones of Gen X feminism and pop culture at large and helped to lead the conversation on sexual assault. It is a community where Amos remains active, continuing her work in establishing RAIN, the country's largest anti-sexual assault organization. In addition to her activist work and her 14 studio albums, Amos has also written music for the stage and screen. Her politically charged new album, Native Invader, is out now. This talk was recorded last month at Murmur Ballroom in Brooklyn in front of a live audience. Tori's interviewer is Pitchfork's senior editor, Jillian Mapes. How are you doing, Tori? I think I'm doing really well. Yeah. I'm so energized by you guys. Thank you for coming. Thank you. We were just talking a little bit backstage about your new album and where your mindset has been lately. And I really want to talk to you about, I know there was a few events that inspired the record, going to the Smoky Mountains, um, you know, obviously everything that's happening politically in the world, um, particularly with the environment. And I just, I just want to touch base with you and see where your head was at when you were making this record, writing this record, and where you're at right now. We took a trip to the Smoky Mountains, and that was uh, about this time last year, before this time last year. During that trip, I was able to sit by rocks and rivers and streams and ask the earth what she wanted to say through me. She speaks through all of you when you're doing your creativity or in your dance or in your healing work. Doctors, nurses, midwives, writers, and that was what I asked, is please guide me and uh, take over my body. You can snatch it. Invade me, mother. And I um, prayed to her and said, as a faithful daughter, but a daughter who makes a lot of mistakes many times a day, show me. And I didn't hear anything. Not a word. 
not a note, not for days or weeks and weeks and weeks and weeks. The Albert Hall was getting booked. <laughs> Uh-oh. I mean, it was getting tricky. And then my mother started to get ill. And that was a real turning point because I went to visit her in the early fall and tell her about my trip to the Smoky Mountains. And then she began to tell me about the stories that she had heard from her father and her aunts and uncles and her relationship to the land. And little did I know that there would be a time when she couldn't speak to me anymore, which would be mid-January. So in looking back, I was having a moment with this amazing woman who's, who's my physical mother, who loves Mother Earth and was sharing with me her, her stories. And um, my goodness, th that time I so treasure right now. And that those were the seeds really for some of the record. And then other events happened. Other events. Do you want to go deeper into the other events, or should we just... Go deeper with me, Jill. <laughs> I mean, I feel like all of our, our brains are always thinking about it already. Um, but when we were talking, you had a good line that we were like, yeah, you should say that on stage. Um, you, you were talking about sort of the information zone we're in, the overload of everything as an emotional taser. Yes, emotional taser. Explain that. What do you... Th what do you oh, th they know. <laughs> <laughs> They're living it. <laughs> oh, hourly. But it was, okay, fine. That's how that energy is working. So Muses9 said, T, wake the fuck up. Get out of your stunned, numb moment because we're responding to energy in November, responding to the energies, the conflicts, uh, the arguments, saying to yourself, did you ever say to yourself, how did I have this argument with this person? What just happened back at the coffee thingy? What just happened? And then it became clear that I just needed to zip take a step back and observe, and really allow the songs to come. And they started to not leave me alone, thank goddess. <laughs> so it came together pretty quickly, it sounds like, obviously, for January being this sort of the fallout from events that happened in January, both in our country, with your mother, and in, you know, in your life largely, and I'm a little curious if you can tell us about putting the record together. Um, you still work with your husband, yes, in his studio and do all that, right? Sometimes he's my husband. <laughs> um, well, when you work closely with, as you all know, that do work with people that you're involved with, it's. It's one of those things where it's hard to describe unless you do it. Um, 
But yeah, you, you have to dive into the trenches and then into the deep water together. And that's what we did from early morning till, you know, burning the midnight oil. And in some ways it was exhilarating because once batches of songs would come, I was traveling a lot coming back to the States. Yes, because of Netflix and Audrey and Daisy, but also because of my mother. So popping in and out of the energy here would bring another rush of ideas and songs. And then I'd go back with those, that batch, and then we'd begin recording those. There's one song I want to ask you about specifically, Benjamin, because you talk about on this song, you know, the pimps in Washington and, you know, referring to super PACs and all the sort of shadiness of what's happening in our government. But it struck me as so interesting because it was inspired by a specific court case that I'm hoping you can tell us about because I had never heard of anything like this and I thought it was kind of remarkable when I started looking into it. Well, what started to happen is um, people started going through other people with messages to me. As I was saying to Jill, Putin isn't the only one with a back channel, you know. So people were coming and saying, do you understand what's happening? And I would say, well, probably not, no. So can you explain to me? And information would be coming from people who work in the, in the science world or um, civil servants, concerned people, concerned people. And so therefore, I started to learn about Juliana versus the United States. And that started to open, wow, a world that I didn't know about. I want to pivot a little bit and ask you musically, this record, it definitely sees you, you know, having a few songs that are more electronic, which you've done in the past. You've done a lot of different styles musically over your career, but it got me kind of wondering about where you're at as an everyday listener, what kind of zone you live in and put on. Like, I don't know, I guess maybe how you think of yourself as like a music fan and what you gravitate towards when you're listening to music, just yourself. Well, I think I'm about ready to dive into Zappa. I wasn't ready until now, and I don't even know if I'm ready now, but I want to give it a go because um, I, was, I was watching his interviews and it really woke me up. It woke me up. He was talking about these things, different things, but variations on the theme a while ago very, very smart person, and also an aware person, somebody who was looking, um, not conjuring things, but really looking at people's intentions and his own. And that was something that um, really lit a firecracker inside myself. So I'm about ready to dive into his catalog, yeah. I love that little face. Hey, how exciting. <laughs> One thing that struck me reading your bio, like as it stands, is you start it and you talk about the National Theater director, um, uh, Nick Heitner, and you talk about him talking about you. 
and he talks about how you're not Sondheim. You know, people love you because of your raw emotion and your pain is their pain. And it was so striking because I had never quite thought about it like that. Not to say you aren't Sondheim, you know. No, but I hadn't thought about it like he put it either. And I think sometimes when you are working with people in a close way, sometimes people say things that might shock you, but then it, it gives you gold because you realize, okay, uh, okay, I need to trust the strength of my work and my work is emotion. And so even though things were happening um, and are happening all the time since November 8th, as far as energy, it was clear I needed to go to, to process it from an emotional place, from a human place. Not, not the place of, of a political journalist, because that isn't, that isn't my trade. And I found that once I started to get caught up in trying to create with somebody else's tools from their world, I realized, I said, what am, what am I doing? I need to respect that, that somebody expresses themselves in their way and then trust and take it to my world. And whatever that is, whatever it is your world is, it might not be um, politics. Mine, mine isn't overtly that. Sometimes the records we were talking about contain that. This one is more than some, but Scarlet's Walk had an element of that too. Great record. Revisit that record if you haven't recently. I did that last week. Wasn't disappointed. Uh, um, you know, I have to wonder though, like how a career sustaining that level of emotion and a vulnerability, if there was ever a point where you're like, this hurts too much because, you know, vulnerability and emotion are the things people use to hurt us too. Um, I, I don't know. I have to just imagine that sometimes it is your trade, but maybe it doesn't feel the best, personally. Well, you know, it's a privilege to create with the muses. It really is. And there are lonely times. There are times when it's lonely to work through something. Chocolate song, it's a song on the record. Some events are tough to write about because they're so raw. Yet, there's something in me that needs to put it in a song. And I'm sure some of you feel that. You know that you, you don't, maybe you bury your head in the sand for a while, but then you need to dance with it and make something with it. You said this really beautiful thing when I last interviewed you. It was around when you put out Gold Dust, which was you brought in this big orchestra and revisiting a lot of your songs and kind of reinterpreting them a little bit, but still obviously staying very true to them. And you said this thing about the song girls, you know, the song girls in your songs and how over the years people tell you things about your songs, what their songs meant to you. And these song girls kind of have little Polaroids and you can look at them and you can see all the people that told you the stories. 
And I have to wonder if that, if that makes it easier or harder to sing them at all. Huh. I, um, when people tell me their relationship with the song, the songs have always said to me, your relationship, T, is your relationship, and that's yours, but somebody else's is somebody else's, and theirs is just as valid. So you would be wise to listen to it, because then, how amazing if then that vision is happening here with somebody else's vision of chocolate song and somebody else's vision over here, and all of a sudden you have a little chocolate solar system happening. <laughs> and there's no downside to that. There's no downside? I guess I have to wonder, once you become a conduit, to have people like give you their stories about some of these really heavy things, if it ever can be too much. You have to find a way to ground yourself. You have to find a way to really take that energy back here, back here, the kundalini, I guess you'd call it, and I lock it down deep into the earth. Lock it down. Minor piano chords, the wires from the piano made of light and go down deep into the earth and there's a moon inside the earth and it's anchored so that those stories are running through and into the great mother because that's that's whom i serve and that's an energy the divine the divine mother the divine feminine and I ask her for guidance, and so when I'm listening, Jill, I don't go out there without being prepared because that's disrespectful to, to the energies themselves. I mean, they're powerful things. So if you're going to do that, I mean, all, all kidding aside and jokes aside, it's very serious, and I take it very seriously, and then, when I walk on stage, whatever Tori's been up to, you know, that has to go aside because something else has to come through. And there's sage there, and, and there's, a, there's a, uh, a ritual of sacredness when you approach mm, the fire ceremony on stage that is sonic, and that's how it works. You have done a lot of different projects about this idea of having these different personalities in yourself and sort of this siloing of the cells. And I really have to wonder when that started for you in your life, when you started to be able to say, like, this is this part of me and this is this part of me. And it all kind of came together and the work became the place for that. When did, when did that start? Do you remember? Or has it always been there? Good question. I'm not sure. I think um, reading mythology was a window. Um, Edith Hamilton, the Greek myths, we were being taught it in school. 
and everybody in class would be choosing, oh, I'm Persephone, or I'm this, or I'm that. And then I think the challenge would become, well, maybe we're all of them in different ways, these archetypes. So it would be almost allowing, what, what does Hera feel like? What is that? And there was a curiosity, I guess. And then to write songs from the point of view of that. And then, of course, I couldn't resist, you know, the dudes, because then you try them on and see how that feels. But that really didn't get expressed, I'd say, if I'm honest with you, until later. Pele was the beginning of that. You have made this really conceptual art. You know, so many of your records have these overarching things you're going for. And you've made most of your work on major labels. And I have to wonder if there was a record or a project that you had to fight the most for to get, I mean, for a lack of a better term, suits to understand or if your level of, you know, having fans that were so receptive to you guarded you from that? Well, they've done an amazing fucking job, these people. <laughs> However, <laughs> I will say that through the 90s, it was, there were different fights for different reasons, and some of it will bore you senseless, but there were different fights because a lot of times, everything is about out there. How out there? They're, they're not talking about you people sitting here. They might think they are. But out there, Tori should be wearing chinos. I remember that in the mid-90s. <laughs> and Karen Benz, those who know her, say, say what? Chino, what? Girl, what? Chino, my, what? No, no, chino, no, girl. So, if you know her, you will understand. And yet, you have these people in a boardroom talking about Tori and Chinos. Now, what, what a waste of time. And the people that are coming to see her, they don't want to see her in fucking Chinos. Could you see you like straddling a piano, wearing the Chinos? I don't think that would really work for you. I don't know the shoe they were contemplating, but that these meetings, hand on my heart, would take place. They would take place because we, oh, we can go into it, but advertisers were running radio, and if they didn't like what you were talking about, or you're upsetting their, they don't agree with your ideology, then guess what? You don't get played when their commercial is running. So just imagine, I'm sure most of you already have figured it out. So you think, oh, so that brand won't play these artists because they're not wearing chinos <laughs> or what have you. So those were the battles that would be happening all the time. And you know, 
there would be moments when you had people you could work with who could see beyond that, because you have to, there are those people there. But I would say because the internet has gotten stronger, for me in my world, it has given the songs more freedom and Karen Benz more freedom <laughs> to, to create because you all have been strong and powerful and your message has been clear. No chinos, that's the message, no chinos. You know, you're bringing up this great point about like advertisers and forces sort of nebulous, not liking things you're saying. And you had a lot of things for people to not like because you were saying things other people weren't saying. And I will never forget being young and watching you on, of all things, the Roseanne Barr show, um, explaining how rain came to be. And it, I rewatched this interview a couple days ago. And I'm wondering if you can just share that, the, you know, the incident with the young girl and needing to give her guidance somehow, because I, it never, I never forgot it. What was so difficult at that time was that the internet, it's not, of course, like it is now. So trying to get information after hearing the story, and the story, some of you have heard it many times, but a girl was fainting during Me and a Gun, the song, and I went backstage, they were reviving her, and she said, I can't go home tonight, my stepfather will rape me as he did last night, as he will the next night, and my mother won't believe me. So, then, we thought, well, maybe we could come up with something for her to do on the road. You know, I wasn't thinking it through, but then I was told that if I took her with our crew and gave her a job, that I would be arrested because we were crossing state line. So in that moment, it was very clear that this needed a tribe of people. This needed an organization. And... Um, the great ladies at Atlantic Records, a group of them, got us connected with Scott Berkowitz in Washington, and we joined forces to create Rain. And it was that harrowing moment of watching her walk out that door. And, I, and I've never seen her again. I have no idea what happened to her. She never reached out to you? Never again. I'm actually really surprised by that. Yeah, but we don't know what happened. No. And that I never forget. Because you go back in time and say, should I have done something different? Sure, you ask yourself that all the time. Yeah. I don't want to make you recount things I know you've talked about before, but... When I did talk to you last, you told me this other story that, again, it's gonna, I'm never going to forget it. And I, I, I would love if you would share it. You were talking about traveling in the Middle East and a woman coming up to you in the in airport bathroom. Do you, remember, do you know what I'm talking about? Can you share this? Do you mind? Well, she talked to me about, I was in the ladies' lavatory, and she came up to me and said, don't stop writing the songs 
don't stop writing the painful, important songs because we listen in secret. We listen when no one knows we're listening, but we are listening. And I said, sister. I think of you every time there is a new song that comes out that is about assault. Because for a long time, your songs were the only songs overtly about that. And occupying that space in the mainstream, I think of the Kesha song that came out not too long ago, Gaga's Till It Happens to You. You've been so close to this cause and you have had so many people share their stories. I'm really curious if you think the world is getting better at listening to these issues and not siloing them off and saying, this is a woman's issue. Like, do you think we're getting better at saying, this is a person issue, this is a people issue, you know, this isn't a niche interest? It's divided. There are some people who are saying, this is a person issue and we are listening. And it's endemic for young men as well as young women. Because there is another part of our culture that doesn't want to talk about it. Are they numb or they just don't want to deal with it? Because then we have to deal with a bigger problem, don't we? We have to deal with a really big problem. How's this happening? Why is this happening? Where is the spirituality in our daily walk? A lot of people are talking the talk, talking about Christ consciousness, but I don't see a lot of Christ consciousness. And that is really worrying that just yesterday I was speaking with a young woman who's a reporter and she is very active on her college campus in Pennsylvania. And she told me, you have no idea how prolific this is on my campus. And I won't say what the campus is because that's her story to tell. But she talked to me and said, it doesn't stop. And it's young women being attacked and young men being attacked. And so something is really broken, isn't it? It's broken in society. And that's why I feel when we come together on the tour, we come together sharing stories, collaborating to shift some energy. And some of the energy is dark, but it needs to be shifted. And with the power of numbers and the power of the great mother, the divine masculine, the divine feminine energies, we can shift it within ourselves. And that's a start, and it's an important start. Before we move on, I do just want to thank you for being that person you know, that was talking about these things when other people weren't talking about these things, because it was really important, so thank you.
So, gonna change gears wildly. Um, I don't know if you've seen, there's an amazing 11 minute video of you yelling at security versus yelling at rude fans on YouTube at your shows. And it's amazing. And you have this great sense of peacekeeping. And I, I am curious if that started because you did start playing, you know, the bar circuit when you were, what, like 13 years old, 14 years old? 13 years old, yes. June, when I was 13 years old. So that's 40 years, isn't it? I can't count very well. Yeah, long time ago. I mean, I imagine that setting, you probably had to do a bit of peacekeeping with like rowdier crowds. Is that where that instinct comes from? Or is it just like, you're being fucking rude. This is my stage. Well, yeah. I think when enough beer gets spilt on a piano, the piano gets tuned and the piano's trying. Yes, it lives in a bar room and it accepts. I live in a bar room. This is my life. But it has pride. Why can't it, why can't the beer stay in the glass or in the tummy? I, why does it have to get on the piano? So sometimes I'd be cleaning up around people, trying to make sure the piano was okay. And then there are other times I think, until you are out there and people aren't coming to see you, but you're there to entertain. The great thing about playing the bar circuit is you really learn. Boy, do you learn when people just weren't hoping to hear from you that night. And there you are. So, I don't know if we've talked about this, Jill, but that is something whereby I do think you can miss a step as a performer if you go from uh, the internet in your bedroom to Madison Square Garden. You know, the, it might sound like a dream, but I would suggest when you all are dreaming about your careers, you do want to do, I understand skipping a few steps of the ladder. I mean, 11 years in the bar room is a little bit long, I agree. But there's some, there is, again, that word gold. There is gold to be found in having to have those hecklers. You know, that's how you're able to take your shoe off in fucking Croatia and throw it at that guy or somewhere. Now that we're talking about live shows, I love a good Tory live show because there is such a playfulness in it and you really have a lot of fun, especially with your covers. And you last tour you did, you were covering everybody from like Rihanna to Nine Inch Nails and everybody knows about your love of covers, but I have to wonder, is there a song you just couldn't cover, is uncoverable, whether you tried it and you were like, this is not me, this isn't any of the personalities of me, or it just, you couldn't do it for some other reason. Sure, yeah, there are loads that I look at and say, it's, it's somebody else's to cover. I think you have to find a way into something. You have to know you can hold the energy. And if, if I can't hold it, I still wanna cover, um, there, there are a couple things I haven't given up on. There's a Queen song I haven't given up on. 
Well, do you want to tell us which one? Or are you keeping that a no, secret? Okay. No. <laughs> Perhaps it'll end up on the internet someday. I'll watch it on YouTube. Um, I think that is um, all between us. And then Elia is going to circulate with some mics. So thank you, Jill. Thank you. Thank you. Tori. Yesy. Speaking of covers, um, you've only done it once in a while, but you said that you loved it. Boys in the Trees. Could you tell us why you love it and maybe we plead and someday you play it again? Well, I love Carly so much. <laughs> and she sent me something lovely when I was pregnant with Tashi. And it was a wonderful message. We connected backstage somewhere. Um, what a light. And when you, when you connect with these people, I was listening to that record when I was, I don't know, young, younger, much younger than, well, I can remember, but I remember being young and I just couldn't stop listening to it. So yeah, of course she needs to come. A version. Thank you, Tori. Well, this is terrifying. Hi. Hi, don't be terrified. <laughs> I wrote a college paper on how your um, addressing of trauma uh, bears witness to other people's uh, trauma and how that might kind of, I don't know, elevate them to speak out on those things. Did you ever have an experience with an artist where you were courageous enough to see them and then say, wow, I can do this? myself and explain my own emotions, you know what I mean? Or did it come from yourself? Well, there were so many records that I listened to uh, that expressed things that I didn't know how to express them. I just didn't know how to do it. River, Joni Mitchell, uh, so many songs, endless amounts of songs, but also things like No Quarter, Led Zeppelin, things that I couldn't express as a Christian female minister's daughter. I wasn't supposed to pick up that 220 voltage, and yet I couldn't resist. And I'd be trembling by the record player listening to all kinds of different records, not just one kind, but different ones. And that helped me deal with, we're back to that emotional taser moment of being stunned, unable to express. And that is where I've heard some people have felt that they've been in the last many, many months. And so we have to shake that loose. And we are, we are shaking that loose. Hi, Tori. Where are you? I'm right here. Hi. I love you. Looking forward to seeing you at the Beacon Theater. Thank you. <laughs> Thank you. Um, I have a question about self-doubt in terms of, they say doubt will kill more dreams than failure ever will. You being such a prolific artist, 15 albums in, how do you snap out of it if you ever do encounter it still? Well, doubt is going to show up because that's her job and so 
sometimes the best thing I've had to learn over the years is to sit down with her and let her just talk. Here, doubt, here's your drink. I'm going to sit and listen to you. Tell me all the reasons I can't do this. Or we can't do this, because that's what it's really about, that we can't do this. And then once you listen, she, I have found that doubt does bring up some good points. <laughs> really, and sometimes it, it's wise to listen to her points because she might say, well, why are you doing this? Good question, doubt. These are good things to ask yourself because, you know, we can all hide from, can't we, what we're up to? I love it when the rockers used to say, you know, when they say, why are you in rock and roll? Because I want to meet hot birds and drive fast cars and make lots of money. And you go, okay, well, he's being very honest about that. It, do, it doesn't mean he didn't make great music. It didn't mean he wasn't a great singer. But it's really good to know why you're doing something and being honest with it. And doubt is good to have to check you. It's like, check me doubt. And then you go, okay, okay, so I'm up to that. So that's good to know. So then you welcome her. And then you create. It, it, it works. Hey, Tori. I just wanted to ask, uh, you have a lot of songs that really speak to the queer community about kind of feeling um, like an outsider and then kind of finding your wings and finding your freedom. Songs like Merman, Take to the Sky, Flying Dutchman, all of those really speak there. Um, my question is, was there a moment in your life that inspired songs like that? And also, is there a song like that on the next record that, that you know, continues that theme? Yes. There's songs on the next record that continue that. But I guess I was in a very vulnerable state when I was working in Washington, D.C. And because of my age, and in a way, you're in the belly of the beast, especially in Washington. Um, when you're an adult world and you're a 13-year-old and 14-year-old and 15-year-old. But it was the gay community that gave me confidence in how to conduct myself. And they would say, what are you doing? I said, what? Why are you sitting like that? I said, what? Like how? They go, like that? With your dress? On your break, I said, oh, how should I sit? And then you get the whole deportment thing. You know, you need to sit like this. Okay, you need to be like this. Shoulders up, where's your confidence? Walk in the room. Don't you see who you are? And that, then I go, no. <laughs> and so there was a real bonding that happened in those years of growing up together, of sharing secrets, of hiding feelings, because 
I was in a very religious household, as some of you all were, and so certain feelings were judged, so to, to protect them, I hid them. And I think it's because we shared with those men and women those secrets. We grew up together. So there, there's that bond. Hi, um, I, um, I'm a playwright and um, you've been one of the biggest influences on my work as an artist and I want to thank you so much for that. But mostly I'm interested to hear about The Light Princess and I'm really interested to hear how working in theater influenced you as an artist and what it might have changed for you in your process, if anything. Well, working with people like Sam Adamson and the whole gang was, uh, was life-changing. It was life-changing. Walking into a different world, different process, um, not being in charge. <laughs> Boy, was that a process. <laughs> and I wonder, you know, you always wonder if, if the opposite, if they walked into our world, how they would have felt, what they would have wanted to know, if I would have been gracious with them, as some of them were very gracious with me. So it, it's it, a life changer, a life changer. Don't know what else to say, except I'm a different person because of it. Um, my question is, I guess, to make it a little bit more personal. Um, Recently, I had a conversation with my sister-in-law, my brother has three sons, I have three nephews, uh, about mothers. And um, my mother watched at the hands of my father a lot of abuse being done to me especially, and I feel like the past three questions kind of summed up that process. As a child who was growing up and who was gay, um, and doubt is certainly something that's playing in my mind. I'm 34 years old, I know what I need to do, but my mother's voice, I know, will say that's the wrong decision for her reasons, not for my reasons. I guess, how do you begin to navigate um, understanding that regardless of her crimes, she's still very important to me and a mother is kind of that umbilical cord, that core that grounds us into the Mother Earth, um, that I need to forgive and I need to move on, but that I need to hear my own voice. How do you begin to navigate that? What well, sounds like you're beginning to do that? Chop wood, carry water? The road, the road to, oh, forgiveness. Wow, what a road. I'm still walking that road, trying to learn every day. But sometimes it, it's also um, allowing myself to not be the need that people around me need me to be. So have you ever been around a group of friends or a group of family and you're the one that's the organizer or you're the one that always makes sure everybody gets home or you're the one that is always, I don't know, fixing everything? And then you think, you know, there's another side to me that they don't know. And that side needs to be allowed to express himself, herself, 
And the records were diving into this at different times. Um, songs that say, you're not the one in the friendship group that needs to hold this space. You need to hold a different space for yourself. And boy, that's just, that's a life's journey. So congratulations that you're on that road. Um, hi, Tori. Hi. My name is Sean. Hi, Sean. Um, so my question to you is sort of about the fights of the 90s. I, I discovered you in 1996. It was two o'clock in the morning. It was Caudalite Sneeze on MTV, which is probably the only time that it ever played on MTV. Yeah. Well, mm -hmm. And I remember <laughs> I, 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 I was instantly connected to you and I, I immediately went out and I bought all the previous albums and I did everything you could in, in the mid 90s to, to find out more because the internet wasn't there. And I was so frustrated. I was so frustrated that the rest of the world didn't see what I saw. And I was like, how is this woman gonna stick around? I had no idea. And then two years later- Because of you, Sean. Yes, <laughs> yes. Um, so I'm getting to the question, I promise. Uh, two years later, the Choir Girl tour, I was the first time that I saw you live. And when I got there, I think it was Madison Square Garden and it was sold out. Like there were so many people that had come to see you and I knew right then and there that like all of my fears about or my frustrations just weren't, they weren't valid. Like I knew that you would be around for a long time. My, so my question finally is, you know, when did you come to that realization that you didn't need to be the top 10 on TRL or on MTV every 30 minutes in order to keep this career and do what you love and not sell out? Holy crap, okay. <laughs> well done. <laughs> well, the first time you realize that is when you're in a bustier and it's 1988. <laughs> and, and all of a sudden, all those music biz friends that had talked to you and said, yeah, I'll be there, come on over, we'll jam. <laughs> Nobody's taking your call. After the record comes out and Billboard does its thing and you know, then you begin to realize, Sean, why am I doing this? What am I making art for? Be honest with yourself, Tori. What are you doing? You were sucked in, weren't you? With that bustier. You were sucked in. Fame is an amazing seductress. And we can all get bitten by it. Hey ho. It happens. It happens. And it happens periodically until menopause. <laughs> and then you realize once you get through menopause, fuck fame. <laughs> uh, 
Um, I'm Sarah. First of all, on behalf of all the other strange little girls growing up, feeling like they don't belong, like nobody understands them, that was my experience. I heard your music and I thought, yes, this woman gets me. She knows me. We've never met, but you know me. And um, that's been really important for me growing up and coming of age. So thank you for that. My question is, uh, I've had to have conversations with myself with, you know, little me in repair of things, you know, life experiences. And um, if you're comfortable sharing, I want to know if you've had those conversations with little Tori and what, if anything, you would say to her now. We all have conversations and need to, I think, with parts of ourselves at different times. I'm going back to a part of myself that um, was sitting with Mary while she could still talk. There's, there's something that correlates with Mary being trapped and forces trying to trap our great mother, Mother Earth, whether they're trying to exploit her or whatever it is. And Lady Liberty is part of that story. And sitting with Mary, when she could talk to me, those things she told me are tattooed, emblazoned on my being. Because now, Mary is desperately trying to communicate, but isn't able to communicate Yes, she is her love and her eyes, but she's very frustrated, and yet she's fighting to be here. So I have conversations right now with myself to go back and say, please be present when Mary is talking with you. Don't look at your phone. Did you look at your phone? Yeah, you looked at your phone, T. You looked at your phone too many times. But, okay. But still, Mary is teaching even now. She's teaching me now through her bravery to face this stroke with as much dignity as she can muster. And there's a song on the record called Mary's Eyes that's inspired by, by Mary's journey. And it's been humbling to watch this woman fight to be on this planet. So my question is sort of a piggyback, serendipitously on the last question. So, speaking of my 15-year-old self, my angsty, depressed, sad, suburban, closeted 15-year-old self, I have songs of yours that are so important to me, especially if I listen to something off Little Earthquakes, so special to me that I almost can't even listen to it, except for live, because it takes me somewhere that it's hard for me to be. And I was wondering if you had anywhere, like a song from your own, or, a song from your like teenhood, your angsty time that brings you somewhere that is almost so painful for you to listen to. You're proud of where you've come from, 
but it takes you somewhere that you're not necessarily comfortable going back to. I think there's songs that do that, sure. And that's their job. And, and that job is an easy job. It's, it's not always the job that you think, oh, God, I'd love to have that job. Sort of like when Netflix called me up and said, um, oh, you want to write something for us? And I said to Tash, that could be fun. Netflix is calling, you know, the magic N. <laughs> and I said, she's looking at me, the magic N? I said, yeah, the magic N's calling. How fun is that? She goes, mom, nobody calls you for fun. I hope that answered your question. Of course there are songs. But you know, it's a, it is a tough job sometimes, I guess. But I don't know if, if you're the song. Imagine that a minute. It's this 36-year-old goddess out there in the row. She doesn't want to listen to me because I'm taking her to a place. Well, but maybe we can hold hands together when she does want to listen to me. Because those songs, I think, if they take us through a tough time, no, they're not. They shouldn't be when you're in your disco outfit, maybe. Maybe that's not the time to bring them out. Or when you've got your makeup already on a Saturday night. But there are times to bring them out. Of course I have them. They're very dear to me. And some, some songs I don't play because they really push me. Especially if something's going on personally in my life, and that song is very connected to that, then, you know, you make a choice perhaps not to be dragging your audience through something that night. So I understand what you're saying. And of course I have those songs, but I find that I need to, I need to play the wrong band more. <laughs> I wanted to ask you a question, which was about uh, song meanings, and if you were planning to ever like publish um, what your meanings were, or if you just preferred to leave them um, to the listener, really. Good question. What I'm curious about, though, is the meanings that other people think they mean. Because I think they're, like we've talked about, that's just as worthy. I'm quite curious to know what people are going to tell me when they talk to me after listening to the new album. And the visions that you get and the messages that you get. Please don't be stranger. Tell me. And we'll weave them into the songs live because we need to. I think I know what the new album's about. But I'm open. <laughs> this, la this gal right here. Thank you so much. So in my line of work, I help people kind of reclaim their body from trauma. And something I hear very often of talking with people is they have a problem with allowing themselves to feel pride, you know, proud of success or accomplishment. And so I guess my question to you is, 
Was there a turning point for you at some point in your career where you got to sit back and you thought, fuck, I'm for the first time actually proud of myself and what I'm doing in this trail that you may have not known you were blazing at the time, but that you were blazing. Is there a moment that just stands out that you got to reclaim yourself through pride? Well, honestly, being able to connect with people and have a collaboration is such a, um, I don't know what the word is. There's a unity and a completeness that in that moment, I'm not aware of all the work that I have to do tomorrow on the path to healing and working through my crap that is there, of course, till I leave the planet. But in the moment of unity and songs, there is a completeness. There are times when sharing with people, there is just, I don't want anything else. And that, I don't even need or want accomplishment. It kind of transcends that moment because you're aware, you're aware that you've gotten somewhere you haven't before. And of course, that's a big step in recovery because when you can feel that completeness with other people joining hands, that happens usually once a night live. And that is such a blessing to be able to feel that. And part of that is because of the people who came, because of you, and you, and you. Thank you so much, Tori. I can't tell you how much you mean to me. I love you. Um, as someone who is so aligned with, with the goddess energy and uh, the sacred feminine, um, how can I um, stop fearing losing my power as I get older? And, and I also have another question. <laughs> uh, I'm surrounded by so many creative people, a beautiful creative man who's brilliant, a successful mother. That's a tough act to follow. As a writer, the muses speak to me, but I have a hard time bringing their ideas to fruition. As someone as prolific as you, how can I find the dedication and drive to bring my story girls to completion and what's stopping me? Thank you. <laughs> That's a lot, I know. Wow. Okay, let's start, with the, let's start with the end, and then we'll go back to the beginning. Your creativity, Everybody who's creative in here knows their, their moments of, well, um, the muses are, I can almost touch them. They're this close. And then there are times when I am struggling to even see them in the distance, even a flicker of them. So that means, though, I've had to come up with ways. You have to come up with ways where you take a pilgrimage. Now that might be in, in the seat of your rocking chair. It doesn't mean you go to Arizona, but maybe you do. 
I've gone to Arizona. I've gone on pilgrimage to Arizona, the place, but I've also sat in my rocking chair and gone to Arizona. And so there, there is a place for listening. Good writers need to listen. Musicians, it's a little different if you're not writers because you're always working on your chops, and I get that. But when you're writing, the important thing, because your chops need to be there already, that's a given, is to listen. And you listen to everything, to the pulse of the traffic, everything. And the reason for this is there are rhythms around you, and you start then becoming part of it. So creating isn't, oh, from 11 till 2.15, I'm gonna do that. No, you're a walking, listening creator. That's who you are. Even when you're not actively doing it, Songs are being written right now. I might not know them yet, but they are because you're listening, because you're present. Most important thing for creators, present. You are there in that moment. I am not having my heirloom tomatoes that I'm gonna be having with my Bordeaux at 10.27 tonight. I'm with this beautiful lady sitting here talking with me and teaching me something because you brought up a very important thing and we'll end with this. And thank you for coming and I hope to see you out there. But we'll... Age. 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 The elders, whatever that looks like to us, have not been necessarily acknowledged in Western culture. The idea of experience, the idea. Knowledge is one thing, isn't it? But my goodness, wisdom is something totally different than that. Knowledge plus experience equals wisdom. And I'm sorry, but you can't have that when you're a hot 28-year-old. <laughs> you can have a lot. You can have your experiences till then, but you don't know menopause. <laughs> and until you do, my friends. Look what you have to look forward to, Ash. You have something wonderful to look forward to. But you have to make it through it. And to the other side, because once you get to the other side, you are fucking free. But what are you free of? You have to be free of objectification. No, it's about being a listener at the fire. You don't need to be the subject. You've been the subject and oh, you were such a good subject. Yay, you. You were cute, all of you. And some of you, yeah, you're cute still. But 
When you step into that place, that's a different place at the fire. Now that's an important place. And you cannot buy that place, my angel. The Koch brothers, honey, they're not going to buy it for you because they can't. It must be earned. It's chop wood, carry water, do your work, apply it to yourself. All I can do is change myself, work on myself, cry with myself, disappoint myself daily, but hey-ho, that happens. It's okay, that's okay. What's not okay is burying my head in the sand at these crucial times. Crucial times. History will look back. Our grandchildren or great nephews, nieces will say, where were you? Mary does this thing. She's able to say, I love you. And she makes sure that it's something she tells everybody. Everybody. No matter who they are, whatever their politics are, you get from Mary, huh? Uh, And it is the most beautiful thing to see because she's transcending politics. Now, I'm not there. That's not where I am. That's not my walk right now. So, age. It's something that gets projected and only we can take it on or decide, no, I'm going to redefine who I am by my deeds, not by my age. But I'm gonna embrace 54. I'm embracing it. Can't wait. Thank you. Jillian Mates. Tori Amos, thank you so much. This has been Inside Out, a series of podcasts from Pitchfork that explore new perspectives on music, art, and culture. Inside Out is presented by MailChimp. Build your brand. Sell more stuff. This podcast was produced by yours truly, Elia Einhorn, and Mark Yoshizumi, and engineered by Mark Yoshizumi. Additional engineering by Jonathan Vergara. Thanks to Ad Hoc for co-presenting and Murmur Ballroom for hosting the event. 